We turn to Philippians chapter 1, reading verses 27 through verse 30. We are journeying through this epistle of joy. Today we look at chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are words that you have given to us by the inspiration of your Spirit. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would apply these words to our lives today. I pray that the words of my mouth Pray that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. My father fought in World War II. And so I can remember as a child we used to play war games. We had these little green plastic army men. Any of you ever had those? We'd set them up, and then I think it was these Lincoln logs. Have you ever built with those wooden Lincoln logs? Those were huge bombs because we would use those to knock those plastic soldiers, scatter them everywhere. And we won the war. We defeated Hitler's army. As I got older, I thought, well, I've kind of uh, grown up now, and we don't play war games anymore. But I began to realize, uh, not too late in life, that as believers in Jesus, are we not in a war? There, there's a battle going on. And it seems that in the last, I don't know, a few years at least, maybe further back, the battle is, is really intensifying. And so we, we are called, are we not? We are called to be soldiers of, of Jesus. We are called to stand firm in the gospel of Christ, defending the truth of God's word. Paul uses the picture of warfare in many, many places. Ephesians 6.11, he tells us to put on the whole armor of God, and there's a whole list of armor that we put on. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus. So it isn't surprising that Paul would use in this passage of Scripture the whole picture of warfare, the picture of being a soldier. Uh, he is writing from prison. And notice the words he uses to remind us that we are in battle. Verse 28, he says, we have opponents. Have you realized that? There are people against us because we stand for the truth of God's word. Verse 29, he says that we will suffer for Christ's sake. 
verse 30, he speaks of, of conflict. And so there's that battle picture in this passage of Scripture. And that's why verse 27 tells us that we need to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. We have something that's worth fighting for. Amen? The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross, that he was raised from the dead, that he offers salvation to everyone who believes, that is a truth that is worth fighting for. And regardless of the cost, and there may be significant cost in the future, we don't know, we must stand firm, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now that's an interesting phrase, the faith of the gospel. That phrase, I believe, describes the body of divine truth that God has given to God's people. Jude calls it, in Jude verse 3, the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And I would suggest to you it's another way of describing the Word of God, describing the Bible, because the main message of the Bible is the Gospel, right? You go back to Genesis 3, that's where the first promise of, of Jesus came. The Gospel is what we must stand on, we must never Compromise that truth. That Jesus, He is the way, no other way. He is the truth, and He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. Paul tells us in this passage of Scripture that there are three ways that we defend the gospel. First of all, we defend the gospel by the consistency of our lives. If we claim that we believe the gospel, should there not be evidence in our lives to back that claim? Would you agree? Okay. If you really believe the gospel of Jesus, if you have received him as your Savior, he dwells within you and he changes your life. And anyone who claims to believe the gospel, but there's absolutely no change in their life, that's a problem, right? Have they really embraced the gospel? That's what Paul is saying in verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We miss this in most of our English translations, but the word translated conduct yourselves, that's the New American Standard Translation, it gives us the picture of a citizen. The noun form of this word refers to a city. It's the Greek word polis. We get our English word metropolis, polis being city. And so the verb form of this word, which Paul uses here, refers to a citizen, one who lives in a city. Okay? So you live, some of you live in Maple Grove, some of you live in Plymouth, some of you live in Brooklyn Center, some of you live in, I don't know where you live, but you are a citizen of that city. We are citizens of the state of Minnesota. Okay? So that's the picture there. What he's saying then is that we are to live as 
citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul could be saying, challenging us to live that way in that city where we live, right, wherever it is. Several places in the New Testament, he challenges us as citizens of wherever we live. In this case, I think it's more likely that Paul is reminding believers that they are citizens of where? Of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. In fact, in this very letter, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. And so the Christian Standard Bible translates verse 27 in this way, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. If this world is not your home and you are just passing through, if you are a citizen of heaven, you're from another world. And it ought to be seen in the way you live, right? That's what Paul is saying. As citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, the word worthy is also an interesting word. And it emphasizes the consistency with which we are to live. It carries the idea of being of equal weight or value. So you could picture a a set of scales, okay? You know, the old scales where they would weigh something. On one side, you have the gospel. On the other side, you have our conduct, our living. And Paul says they should balance. There should be a consistency there. And this is something that he mentions quite often. He he loves the word worthy because he uses it in several places. For example, Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk, that's our living, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Colossians 1.10 Walk, okay, our, our living, in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. First Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. So what is Paul saying over and over again? It matters how you live. It matters. If you claim to embrace the gospel, if you know Jesus, Paul says there is a way you ought to walk. It ought to be seen in your life. Now, how does that consistency in our lives defend the gospel? Well, when unbelievers see people who claim to know the Lord and they don't see evidence in their lives, it just gives them another excuse, not a good one, but another excuse to turn away from the gospel. Because they'll say, well, what did it do for you? What can you say? Not a valid excuse, but that's how, in their minds, it's a reason. How many times have you heard someone say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. huh?" But if our life is consistent with our message, you know what it does? It gives evidence to the power of the gospel. And it has a way of making the gospel more appealing. When someone sees the change that Jesus brings in your life, 
Sometimes they'll say, what is it that makes you different? You don't live like the rest of the world lives. You've got peace and you've got joy and you've got contentment. What is it that makes you different? There's a great illustration of that in Titus chapter 2. Paul is addressing various groups of people. And in verse 9, he, he urges bond slaves to live a godly life. He says to be subject to their own masters, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing good faith. Why? Purpose. So that, and this is quite an interesting phrase, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So they will adorn the doctrine of our Savior. The the word adorn is the Greek word cosmeto. And we get our English word cosmetics from it. Any of you have some cosmetics on today? I don't use them because I don't think it can help this this face. But what's the purpose of cosmetics? Ladies, huh? You put on the, uh, what do you call that, blush or basis or something on there on, your, on your, your eyelids and your eyelashes. And when your husband sees you, he says, Woo! Glad I married you, babe. Huh? <laughs> so what is the point there? When we live a life that, is a godly life, it causes people to say, hmm, there must be something about that gospel. There must be something about the good news of Jesus because your life makes the gospel look more appealing. There was a church member who said to his pastor one day, we have some neighbors who believe a false gospel. Do you have some literature I can give them? <laughs> the pastor opened up his Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, and he read, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And he said, Let them see Christ in your behavior. And this will open up opportunities to share Christ's gospel with them. That's what Paul is saying, isn't he? That's exactly what he's saying. So we defend the gospel by the consistency of our lives. We, we reveal to others that it is real because the evidence is there that Jesus has changed our lives. Are we perfect? Anybody here perfect? Some of you are pointing to your spouse. That's, that's an encouraging thing. Huh? Oh, we fail. But Jesus makes a difference. Not to be evident in our lives. Notice, secondly, we defend the gospel by the cooperation of our team. Notice at the end of verse 27, Paul changes the picture from citizens to athletes. You might not recognize this because of the the way it's translated. But at the end of the verse, he says, I, will, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. And then this phrase, striving together. 
or the faith of the gospel. The word striving is the word athleto. We get our English word athlete from that word. So the picture here is that of athletes working together in one spirit with one mind. How many of you played on a team? Okay. Basketball, football, baseball, hockey, whatever it is. You know the importance of playing defense as a team, don't you? Team defense is so vital. I've been watching hockey, NCAA tournament, a lot of low-scoring games because there's been wonderful team defense. That is so important in, in, in sports. And Paul says the same is true when it comes to the body of Christ. Paul might have been a little concerned that this kind of oneness wasn't always evident in Philippi. In verse 27, he encourages them to live in such a way so that whether I come and see you or if I remain absent, I will hear that this is what's going on there, that you are striving uh, together, standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's one thing for the Philippians to be working as a team when Paul was there. What about when he was gone? Will he hear that the same is going on while he was not there? Or will it be when the cat's away, the mice will play? Huh? Are you different when you're not in church? When your pastor is not watching you, uh, the test of our walk with the Lord is, is, is seen when we're not around everybody who knows us. Huh? So Paul might have been a bit concerned about that. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, he mentions by name two women who were not getting along. Euodia, chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I'll say it with authority, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true com companion, I also urge you to help these women. I think it was Chuck Swindoll that called them uh, odious and soon touchy or something like that. He said, these ladies need to... You need to help them. They're, they're, not, they're not getting along. They're, they're not one in heart and, and one in spirit. Paul believed that unity was so important that he asked the congregation to help them. They need to be united. It takes effort, doesn't it, to be united? Unity in the church doesn't just happen. There are times when it takes Diligence. In fact, that's the word Paul uses in Ephesians 4. I urge you, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And then he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that word diligent is Present tense, which would suggest what? This is an ongoing thing that must take place in our lives that we are diligent 
preserving unity. The unity that God gives us in Jesus. So why is it important that we work together in defending the gospel? If you are defending the gospel, you can be sure that you're going to be attacked. Agree? If you are standing for truth, especially in this culture, you are going to be attacked. And you don't want to be under attack alone. You are much more vulnerable when you are alone. Agree? This is why Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. He sent them out alone. This is why Paul never went on any missionary journey alone. You'll see Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy. They weren't lone rangers. They weren't sent out alone. And this is why we must support one another as we stand for the truth. We need one another. Mark DeHaan of Our Daily Bread said many years ago, former American prisoners of war were interviewed to determine what methods used by the enemy had been most effective in breaking their spirit. Researchers learned that prisoners didn't break down from physical deprivation and torture as quickly as they did from, guess what? Solitary confinement. Or from being frequently moved around and separated from friends. It was further learned that the soldiers drew their greatest strength from the close attachments they had formed to the small military units to which they belonged. You need more than Sunday morning, okay? This is a large group gathering. Not the biggest group, our Sunday school meeting now, but You need the close fellowship of a small group. You don't want to battle alone. You don't want to face the challenges of life alone. Because when we are under attack, that is especially when we need one another. Having a common enemy unites, isn't it? Look at the country of Ukraine. How united they are. They've got a common enemy. They are joining together. So we defend the gospel by the cooperation of our team. We are in this together and we need to stick together. We need to stick together. No lone rangers. No facing it alone. We're in it together. Notice thirdly, we defend the gospel by... The confidence we have in the Lord. That's the bottom line, isn't it? The confidence we have in the Lord. I was involved in the start of of two congregations many years ago. And I must tell you, it is nothing like the start of the congregation in Philippi. (laughs) To go back to Acts chapter 16, here's what it says how that church started. Acts 16, 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, A slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling, and Paul cast a demon out of her, and all hell broke loose. 
Verse 19 says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities, and when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion. Being Jews and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe because we're Romans. And so the crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jail to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now that's quite a way to start a church, isn't it? There was a legal attack and there was a physical attack. We might say we can expect both. There are certainly legal attacks being brought against churches, against those who preach the gospel. Will we in our country face physical suffering, persecution? Who knows? That's how that church started. And so the Philippians were well aware of that situation as Paul writes to them. And it would have been easy for them to give in to fear, wouldn't it? Is this what it's going to be? I didn't sign up for this. I didn't think this would be the result. I don't know of anybody that would love to be beaten with rods and put in stocks and thrown in jail. And yet, what does Paul say to them in verse 28? He says that they were in no way to be alarmed by their opponents. In no way alarmed by your opponent. One author says the word translated alarmed is found only here in biblical Greek and denotes, here's the picture, the uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. You picture that? Horses just startled and they, they take off in, in fear. And so Paul is saying don't run away like scared horses when you face opposition. Don't be alarmed. Don't run away. He explains why they should not be alarmed. For one thing, he says, God is the one who controls the outcome. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. A sign of destruction them. You see, the outcome for those who oppose the gospel will be destruction. It will be destruction of the worst kind. It will be eternal destruction. Listen to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 6. Paul says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of God. 
God will deal with those who afflict His people because He's the one that controls the outcome. God always has the final word. Remember that. He always has the final word. What will be the outcome for those who defend the gospel? The outcome will be the very opposite. Not destruction, but salvation. And notice that God is the one who will bring this about. Don't be alarmed, Paul says. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. We don't need to be alarmed. We know that in Jesus, we are on the winning side. One man said, I read the last page of the book, Revelation, and we win. (laughs) We are on the winning side. And that makes a huge difference in the battle. When you know that we win in Jesus, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. I mentioned I was watching hockey, you know. When your team is playing and you don't know the outcome, ooh, the stress, huh? Blood pressure goes up. And I remember a couple years ago when the Bulldogs, the Unity Bulldogs, were in the national championship. That was hard on the old man. And I was out in between periods shoveling snow and walking down the road just to get rid of stress and but now I can look back, I can watch that video, and I can, I can just say, oh, this is awesome. I know the outcome. I know the outcome. We know the outcome. God has the final word. That's why Paul says, don't, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Salvation for you. And that too is from God. And then he goes on to say we shouldn't be alarmed because... We aren't the only ones facing opposition. Others are experiencing the same conflict. Look at verse 29 and 30. Paul says, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says, you saw it in me. What happened? Thrown in jail, beaten with rods. They saw it. And Paul says, now you hear of conflict I'm facing. He's writing from from jail. Paul says, you're you're not the only one. I'm experiencing the same conflict as you. And I find it interesting, the word conflict is the word from which we get our English word agony. It's the word agon. There are times when it is tough. No question. And yet notice what Paul says. Verse 27, For to you it has been granted. Granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. The word granted is, is the word that's, that's translated grace in Scripture. By God's grace, You've been given the privilege not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. I don't think the world understands that. Why would anybody view suffering for Jesus' sake being something that God has granted to us 
by His grace. It's something that we would rejoice in. Peter knew what it was to suffer. He writes to believers, 1 Peter 4.12, we read today from Scripture, don't, don't be surprised at this that comes upon you as though it's some strange thing. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Is it possible to rejoice in suffering for Jesus' sake? Is Peter out of his mind? It must be possible because that's what the disciples did in Acts chapter 5, remember? Verse 40, after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Isn't that amazing? That's the grace of God, isn't it? God working in them, they had been beaten, they had been flogged, and yet, yet they were rejoicing because it was for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. So that's the call given in this text, isn't it? Standing firm. United together for the truth of the gospel, even if it costs us. Even if it costs us. Seven miles south of the city of Naples, Italy, is Mount Vesuvius. You remember that? I know you weren't alive then, but you read about it in history. A.D. 79. It erupted and completely buried the city of Pompeii. And there were ex- excavations done in the 1700s. And from what I read, they, they found the remains of a couple thousand uh, victims. They say the population was probably about 20,000 people. And one of the interesting things was where they found the Roman sentinel. He was found standing at the city gate where he'd been placed by the captain, his hands were still holding on to his weapon. Faithful, huh? Stood there. The earth shook beneath him. The the flood of ashes and cinders overwhelmed him. And he stood there at his post where his captain told him to stand. I'd call that standing firm, huh? Standing firm. We don't know what's in store for us in the days to come. It may be more difficult than than we ever imagined. But one thing we can be sure of is that God will give us the strength to be faithful, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We just sang, yet not I, but Christ was in me. That's where the power comes from. That's where the strength comes. When we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, He comes and dwells in us. His Spirit dwells within us. Empowers us to live the Christian life. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Father, thank You for the power of Your Word. The power of the gospel of Jesus changes us transforms us, makes us new creatures 
so the world sees the difference that you make. Lord, help us to stand united together for the truth of the gospel that Jesus died on a cross, was buried in the tomb, was raised from the dead, and offers everlasting life to all who believe. These things we pray in his precious name and for his sake.